You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet. Can you rapidly define a red team, conjure what 10 to the 26th integer is, or explain open RAN homomorphic encryption? Well, people in the White House can, and they do, and they understand the potential concerns about the rapid development of AI without safeguards. So the president has issued an executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development of artificial intelligence, and it will have national security implications. So tonight, I'm going to talk to a couple of experts, friends of the cast, about this EO, what it does, and what it doesn't do. But before we get into the discussion, let me ask you, where will you be on November 16th and 17th? If you're a national security lawyer, you should be at the 33rd annual review of national security law here in D.C. The event is presented by the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This is your chance to grow your national security law knowledge and network in vivo, meaning face to face, and you cannot miss it. So we will have a link to sign up for the conference in the notes. Now on to the cast. Joining me tonight are Roland Trope and Adriana Lidke. Roland Trope is a partner in the New York offices of Trope and SRAM LLP, where he's a national security law practice. He's an adjunct professor at the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and he's co-chair of the ABA Cybersecurity Legal Task Force and a vice chair of the ABA Task Force on Law and Artificial Intelligence. Adriana, she's Roland's co-chair on the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force and an associate general counsel of intellectual property and technology law at Lockheed Martin where she gives legal support on a variety of areas, including management and protection of intellectual property, government and commercial IP licensing, and support of the company's AI software factory and digital transformation initiatives. Now, Roland and Adriana, like most of our guests, are here speaking in their individual capacity, and their views are not intended to represent any of those of a company or other organization. So thank you for coming in. It's good to see you both. Good evening. Good to see you. Thank you. All right, let's start. This is a massive executive order. It takes on a lot of aspects of AI. Would either of you like to state broadly what this EO appears to do? Well, why don't I take a first pass at it? And I'm going to do this at a very high level because, as you said, it's quite lengthy. And it helps to sort of keep in mind the two overarching objectives. The first is that the executive order aims to improve the chances that artificial intelligence and generative AI will deliver on their promising potential to help humans achieve things we could not previously accomplish. However, this objective is tempered by certain precautionary directions aimed at making sure AI is developed responsibly, safely, securely, that it's thoroughly tested to learn what it can and cannot do, and to learn what it might do that it wasn't designed to do, otherwise known as emergent behaviors and to weed out those risks before they cause inadvertent but potentially great harm. A key concept that the EO uses in this to sort of verify some of these things, and we'll come to this later, is AI red teaming. Second overarching objective is that the EO aims to detect and defeat efforts to take advantage of AI's capabilities and turn them towards malicious, harmful actions. That may be by bad actors in the commercial sphere, state-sponsored actors, 
or peer adversaries. And certainly the latter category is the one that the executive order is most concerned about. This objective, in turn, is tempered by an apparent recognition that since private enterprise is leading the development of artificial intelligence, the federal government needs AI developers to report to the government when their work has created an AI model capability that could be harmful if it reached the wrong hands, and to report when potentially bad actors are seeking to get their hands on such capabilities. So those are the two objectives that I saw. What was your perspective on it, Adriana? I honestly think that there's clearly an enormous amount of thought that has gone into this, trying to be comprehensive, trying to think about all of the different areas in which AI can touch and also how AI needs to be assessed in all sorts of different contexts. The breadth of the topics and the areas um, was certainly uh, of interest to me. I mean, everything from how AI might be used in agricultural subsidies, how it might be used in, in really just all sorts of different contexts, the financial world. And because that's what you see, you see that you know, the AI technologies are really being leveraged just about everywhere. It was really good to see sort of the breadth of topics and of thought leadership in terms of how the government is going to really start engaging in in some of this. It was a really good step in a lot of directions. Also, I found it interesting to note that it did not follow the approach uh, that Europe has sort of advocated for in terms of the kind of tiered AI risk approach, which I have always wondered how workable that really is going to be, just because you spend a lot of time arguing about which category it's in. So I've wondered whether that was really the right approach to it. And so it was really interesting to see that we've taken a different approach. And I I thought that was probably more realistic. I might add that For people who haven't read it yet, or for those who have read it once and plan, as I think most of us, to reread it several times, there appears to be an asymmetry in the directions. The directions aimed at enhancing AI's chances of fulfilling its promise tend to be less specific and provisional, which is only reasonable since that's going to be emerging and developing. By contrast, the directions aimed at identifying, detecting, and countering and labeling efforts to harm national security interests of the U.S. tend to be much more specific and appear to reflect targeted concerns that have been growing and become increasingly clear in the careful work done by the nation's intelligence services. I also just wonder, as a side point, how much of the EO was changed after generative AI caught fire last December and January of this year? Let's talk for a minute about this. Foundational AI might be important for people to understand is almost a supply chain concern in the sense that it can become a part of everything that comes from its sort of original content. When you talked about red teams, and we talked a little bit about watermarking and some of the things that are intended to go right to problems that might be created foundationally with AI What was your reaction, um, both of you, to sort of the fulsomeness of this discussion, as well as the proposed report on national security and other studies that were suggested in the EO or or mandated by the EO? 
let me start by saying that I, I think the the approach in terms of introducing, you know, or focusing on the concept of foundational AI is is appropriate. I mean that that is frankly just as with software that is how these models are developed and grown. And when you start with a certain model and certain certain training data, then ultimately you're going to end up building on all of that. But the one thing you have sort of no way of predicting, and, and this is a maybe a, a concern that we could talk about a little bit, is when you build a model and you build it and you train it to do certain things, it can be in many ways like you know, any sort of tool that say you would go and buy at Home Depot, you intend it for use in certain ways. But frankly, once somebody leaves the store, you have absolutely no idea what they're going to do with it. The concept of the Secretary of Commerce having to require reporting from companies that are creating what is called dual use foundational models can be very difficult because it's not limited to these products and tools that are actually already, you know, designed for dual use, but things that actually could potentially be modified or utilized in that way. And to some extent, that is, that's going to be difficult to predict. Adriana, when when you read through it, did you see anywhere where the executive order explains how dual use foundation models will be identified, not the criteria for what they are? That's set forth in the definition. If a particular company develops it, they're under no obligation to report to the government that they've created something, or to put it differently, that 10 years ago they created something and it's embedded in a number of their commercial products. That sort of leads me to, you know, something that I was thinking about and and honestly, foundational to the whole EO are the definitions. First of all, even the definition of AI, which was obviously taken from, you know, statute 15 USC, is already a fairly broad definition and frankly, something that encompasses a lot of predictive modeling technology that's kind of been around for years. So you start with kind of even the definition of AI being pretty broad. And then the dual use foundational models, the definition, you know, is talking about something that, you know, is trained on broad data, contains at least tens of billions of parameters, which I thought might be useful now, but maybe in five years might not be so useful because we may have gone well past billions of parameters for even the most basic technology, you just don't know, but that exhibits or could easily be modified to exhibit high levels of performance at, you know, basically risky tasks. I I don't know what easily modified means. You know, I don't know really how all of that is going to be defined. And so that level of ambiguity, even in the definition, and then to your point, we're not 100% sure whether, say, the general use tool that we have developed could be easily modified. I mean, does it have to be a standard programmer? What happens, you know, like what level of skill needs to, you know, make it easily modifiable? I, I don't know the answer to this. Uh, to your point also, okay, so what's the requirement that we as a company or we as an entity have to come for? and report this. And I'm going to assume that the Secretary of Commerce is going to create this requirement, this regulatory requirement, but it's a good question. What's the authority by which you go out and require particularly, you know, all commercial, you know, companies to disclose all of this? Because when they do that, 
they're taking on this obligation. They're potentially having to disclose trade secrets. And frankly, they're they're having to support a process by which they're going to have to use resources to meet these reporting requirements that they otherwise might be using to develop AI. You mentioned the reporting. I think it it might be important to say a little bit about what that is, because it strikes me as a lot of other government models where there's a data set held somewhere because people have to report certain things like they do Mm -hmm. with the Bank Secrecy Act. I'm not sure what efficacy that might have. And I wonder how that would be helpful in the long term and whether or not there would be resources adequate to do anything with that reporting or sort of what any enforcement mechanism would look like on the other side of that. Did you have some thoughts given the work that you do? When I read the definition of dual-use foundation model, the first thing that struck me was the term itself. It suggests an export control basis as opposed to, you know, an ITAR controlled, a commerce control of dual-use items. So I was looking throughout the executive order for something that was going to suggest that dual-use foundation models would be subject to some of the enhanced export controls that commerce was supposedly going to do back when CFIUS was revised and the new Export Control Act came out. But I didn't find anything like that. And yet I suspect that one of the ways, because we've done this traditionally and we're good at it, is that the government will start imposing export controls and that will cause companies to report it because if they want to export it, they're going to have to get a license if if a license is required. That was my take on this because I kept looking for some explanation of a dual-use regime, and I didn't find that in the executive order. But I think that that's behind it because you don't use that language without having that context in mind. Adriana, I'd like to talk about, just for a moment, the public data sets. We've addressed this in our prior podcast, but sort of the availability and use of public data sets. And if you would also like to be able to comment on that as in and of itself, any sort of a national security concern. The government data is is generally by default made available to the public. There are limitations and restrictions such as, you know, confidential unclassified information and classified information. But a lot of the government generated, collected in data is made available, whether it is just directly to the public or through FOIA requests, there is sort of a default on that. And so, of course, The government is a fantastic source of AI training data, right? The real issue is how this data is all going to be used and, you know, what purposes it may be, you know, modified for or frankly warped into that might really be detrimental and on all sorts of different fronts. One of the things that I I did also think was interesting, and maybe this is just me and used to sort of the, the government contractor world is the definition of commercial data. To me, I think of that as basically being publicly available data. But one of the things that it does include for purposes of this EO is also data that is just provided to the government. And I don't think of government data, all data being provided to the government as something that would be commercial and publicly available. Protection of data and the management of data, which is something that is a, frankly, a huge issue for the government, is something that really we do need to focus on. And this is 
there are a lot of steps in in the EO that talk about how we can really start framing some of those analyses. There are tons of different questions, but I, but I do like the idea that we're really going to focus on, for example, the national security implications of uses of databases and data sets, trying to figure out what steps we can take to promote safe reliefs and preventing malicious use of federal data, for example, in AI training. These are things that we really do need to focus on. When there was a discussion about how the federal government employees will be using AI One of the things that they focused on, in addition to obviously training and picking the right tools, was also negotiating the right terms with their vendors. And one of the things that I think is a real potential issue is that when you use tools, third-party tools, COT software, COT hardware, all of this stuff, there is an enormous amount of data that is collected. Think about not only the data that the government is generating and collecting internally, but also all of the tools that they're using and the fact that all of that information and data, if you're not careful about how you negotiate the terms and conditions, that is leading to even more data that is actually leaving the realm of government control. And so there's that balance and that awareness that you have to sort of get your hands around where the data is going and and how it's being used. And those are really good aspects of data management that they need to be focusing on. You know, I didn't see something in there, Adriana. There were hearings on the Hill, as you know, probably, I don't know, four months ago now, wherein it came to light that there's a lot of data that's stored in different places that are almost there. It's almost unlocatable that the, these vast swaths of data that could be accessed and they could be used to train models and they could be used for a variety of things. And during the hearing, it just wasn't clear how those would be integrated or used to train any models. And I found that part interesting note, particularly the vast amount of data that's possessed by the Department of Defense that could be seriously useful. One comment I will make is that it is important when you're dealing with AI to recognize that unlabeled, un- or disorganized data is is not helpful because you can't use it to train models. And one of the things that is an issue when you're identifying training data and why the training databases are so valuable is because it is categorized and labeled so that it can actually be used. And there is a ton of data out there that is not even usable for purposes of AI training simply for that reason. There is a tendency in Congress to talk about data as if it was uniformly useful for training an AI model. It's not. There's either data that's been properly labeled and organized or there's not. But there's the second level, which is what's the quality of the data? The poorer the quality of the data, the less capable the model will be at predicting. And remember, all of these AI models are basically prediction machines. If you give them bad data, they're not going to predict very accurately. When you consider generative AI programs, several of which acknowledge that they were trained on data pulled from what's available on the internet during certain years, think of how much poor writing, for example, is out there on the internet. And they never acknowledge whether they used any dark web data. What's important about what the Department of Defense has is that much of its data, especially its reconnaissance data for image recognition, is extraordinarily high quality data. 
And when it contracts with companies like Lockheed and the other aerospace and defense companies, a central issue is who's going to own that high quality data that's developed during a particular project. I was curious that there was no mention of that either in here. And I would think that most of the companies that we depend on for national security need to know that when they invest in that, they're not relinquishing the, the investment in this high quality data. And let's shift to another proprietary sort of proprietary data topic, which I wanted to ask Roland, if he could talk a little bit about the instructions to the patent and trade office and copyright offices that are contained within the EO. As I read them, they seem to be asking the USPTO to do what it could to protect companies' efforts to develop AI. And they were asking the copyright office to do the same. But in saying that, they're asking each of those offices to look again and reconsider positions they recently took after years of careful consideration, requests for public comment that they did two or three years ago, and guidance that they issued. For example, the Copyright Office, I believe it was in March, issued guidance on registration of works created entirely or partially with AI. And the decision that the Copyright Office issued for guidance was that anytime someone submits a work of authorship for registration for a U.S. copyright, you must identify, you the applicant, must identify any expressive elements in that work of authorship that were created or generated by artificial intelligence. And the reason you must do that is that that will not be covered by the copyright when it's registered. Copyright applies only to human authors and what they create. To say then, the US Copyright Office should revisit that, it's poking at the issue of, will there be copyright protection for expressive elements created by artificial intelligence? Same issue in the USPTO. They issue decisions and they've been backed by the courts that an inventor cannot be artificial intelligence. Inventors. And when you say when you say back by the courts, Roland, you're referring to the fact that there have already been opinions issued on precisely this Just by the D.C. Circuit. And I believe maybe the ninth as well. Yeah. And what they're saying is that the, the USPTO correctly interpreted the applicable statutes to reach the conclusion that to be an inventor, you must be a human to submit a patent application or an application for a patent. You must also be a human. And one of the reasons is that A.I. cannot certify or take an oath to the accuracy and completeness of an application. Only a human can do that. Those are really important distinctions. And what's interesting, and, and I realize this isn't in the executive order, but for people that are looking at the broader context, the recent settlement by the Writers Guild with the studios and networks paralleled the decisions contained in the Copyright and Patent Office, where if AI creates something, it will not be treated as, quote, literary materials, which is a defined term that only human writers can create. And, and moreover, uh, the settlement occurred within days of that opinion, as I recall. Very close to it. And, and what they were basically saying is you can't use AI as a cost-saving substitute for a human author. You can't give an AI original script to a human and say, now you adapt, adapt this or rewrite it and you'll only get paid as a rewriting rather than an original scriptwriter, which, by the way, in the current pay scales is about 50% less compensation. 
And that's why when the, the studios refused to negotiate that issue, the Writers Guild went out on strike. I think we're going to watch a lot of litigation, a lot of changes occurring. Um, I want to shift briefly, though. There is often discussion about a global approach to AI standards that would, I guess, mimic some other global understandings. You know, we've had a lot of these things when it comes to the space law and space warfare and conflict. And we've had it, you know, out of the Talim manual with respect to cyber what are your thoughts about whether something like that could work? And did you see anything in the EO that sort of leaned in the direction of suggesting that such a thing was anticipated? When it was announced, I believe it was Vice President Harris who made the comments that, you know, the United States is going to be the global leader in AI and we will be the ones setting, writing the rules for governing it. The problem with that kind of a boast is that it doesn't really work well if you're asking your allies to collaborate with you when they have quite different views as to how these things are to be controlled and approached. Uh, Europe looks at things very differently than we do. It's well known that Chinese have extraordinarily detailed regulations concerning AI, and they do so, no doubt, for their own national security and domestic control reasons. But I'm not optimistic that this will result in some kind of a global consensus or even a consensus among a select group of allies. The other thing I want to mention, and this goes back to Adriana's discussion of the definition of AI in the EO. It's a rather dated definition. It leaves out what the GAO now adds as part of its definition of AI, which is that AI continually gets better at what it does. Now, that's a bit of an exaggeration also. Certain AI programs when you train them, they can deteriorate. But the other issue that this executive order is very concerned about is the cybersecurity aspect of AI, both that AI can be used to increase the effectiveness of cyber attacks, and AI itself is quite vulnerable to cyber attacks, to the poisoning of the data, and any company that adopts an AI application is increasing its vulnerabilities to cyber risks, particularly if it doesn't check to see what these programs may contain in the way of vulnerabilities. And it's interesting, I know it's not a habit of most users to read terms of use when they click yes, so they can start using it. But if you look at the terms of use of ChatGPT4, whose maker is OpenAI, it specifically says, Cybersecurity is the responsibility of the user, and the user has an obligation to report promptly any cyber incident it experiences in the use of ChatGPT4. There is no reciprocal representation or warranty by OpenAI that it will be responsible for cybersecurity, that it will protect the product from harming users in that regard. And it makes no offer to report cyber incidents that it experiences that users might need to know about so they could temporarily discontinue use of it until the threat is addressed. Those terms of service, I actually remember seeing that because we've recently acquired ChatGPT4, and that struck me. I did think it was somewhat obvious in the TOSs for that company. I was a little surprised. It was easier to find. Adriana, we're going to need an AI workforce. And one of the concerns that I have always had about 
talking about ex an existing workforce is I would like to see sort of a plan or a roadmap for acquiring a new workforce and giving Americans wherever they may live. If they live in a Rust Belt town where the schools are not great or they're living in the Bronx, the same access to training and education so that we can build tens of thousands of people who would be equipped to deal with new technologies, not just AI, but quantum as it as it comes along. I didn't see anything in there, but they did talk about the potential impacts on existing workforces and sort of training and acquiring existing workforces. Would you like to discuss that just briefly or what your reactions were to what you saw in the EO? So first of all, I, I agree with you that we have a pretty significant workforce challenge. And what I did see, and admittedly, because it is such a big document, I probably can't immediately point you to where it was. But I do recall that there was definitely some thought to building training programs and education. So I do think that that is in this document, that there there is the notion that we need to have better training and education on these topics and work to do that. What I frankly do recall reading more about is how we can work on modifying our immigration practices to bring in people from other countries that have these type of training and expertise. Just the fact that having read through it, that, you know, is more in my head than training the people at home is maybe saying something. That doesn't mean that I disagree with either of the approaches, but I do agree that focusing on to build our, our workforce here at home is, is a very important thing. And, and frankly, I was talking with with various colleagues about, you know, the notion that they're going to put out recs for, you know, people who have various types of AI related experience, whether that's in technology or, you know, legal or business or whatever it is to, to help get the expertise that they need to really develop policies. That's going to be a challenge because I know that it is a challenge to the commercial world to find people who have the right skill set. For better or for worse, the commercial world pays better than the government world. And so if, if an individual has some AI related training, they're probably going to be, you know, have, have a pick of jobs at that point. And it's going to, I think, going to be a challenge for the government to, to get that expertise. We need to continue to work on our education, on training our own workforce, because we are absolutely going to the nature of the jobs that are available as AI builds and, and takes on new capabilities. The workforce needs are simply going to change, and we need to prepare our workers to meet those challenges, because otherwise you're creating, you know, a divide and a gap that really is not going to be healthy. And so it's it's important to to make sure that we're addressing that. And I was happy to see that 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 was something that they were going to look at, sort of the displacement, you know, worker displacement by AI and what the impacts were and how those could potentially be addressed. That's a really important question to be asking. Roland, if if I could ask you, you teach as well. You're teaching at West Point. So occasionally we have said on this pod, or I have said and expressed some concern about our lack of a national primary education in STEM. And all of our enemies basically in the world have a nationwide STEM education program intended to identify talent wherever it may be in that country. 
just based on what you're seeing, because you are going to be seeing people between 18 and 22 years of age, what do you think about sort of the missing primary, secondary education discussion in the EO and independent of the EO? Do you have any thoughts on whether that sort of expansion of education is is more looking where the ball is going to be as opposed to where the ball is right now? What are your thoughts? First, I thought that the executive order didn't make clear enough that when it talked about an AI workforce, part of that would mean people who are responsible for developing and improving AI applications. But another part of it is training people so that they become responsible users and capable users of AI. Most radiologists in the future will not work in hospitals without using AI to enhance their work. That training is absolutely necessary. The further you go in any profession, the more likely you're going to find that as an entry barrier. If you don't know what AI is, what its limitations are, so that when you're using it, you know when it's not serving you properly, you can't use the tool, you're going to find that a significant entry barrier to that profession. West Point has been dealing with the issue. You talk about a long-term view. Seven years ago, they asked me to stop doing my intellectual property lectures with ordinary examples and to, as much as possible, give examples of AI applications. So they weren't waiting for the headlines to get them to move. But now let me go to what I believe is the thrust of what your question is asking. We all know that there has opened a rather large digital gap between communities in certain cities, communities on Indian reservations, communities that are just poorer than other communities. They don't have access to broadband internet. They can't afford computers. And so the students in those schools grow up on the wrong side of the digital gap. They are not as qualified as everybody else to keep pace with the technological opportunities that are opening. The deployment of artificial intelligence and the pace at which it is evolving, which is extraordinary. We're gonna have an AI gap that'll be worse than the digital gap. And I was sad to see that the executive order didn't recognize that, but obviously if you talk about that, you have to try to do something about it, otherwise people then complain. And it's not clear to me that the country actually is committed to having everyone well-educated and everyone being capable of being part of that workforce. And yet, forgetting about our adversaries, if we want a country that is prosperous, everybody needs to be rise, having their boats raised when that tide comes in and rises. That's very beautifully put. And I hope at some point we would see some action, maybe even from Congress. I'm not optimistic today. Before we leave this podcast, though, I wanted to ask each of you if there are specific things in the executive order that resonated with you, concerns you, piqued your curiosity that you would like to talk about before we close out. And then the last thing uh, on top of that, I would just like one of you, if you would kindly, this connection back to the CHIPS Act, there was a discussion about computer chips processing semiconductors. I wonder what your thoughts are about the discussion about semiconductors that is contained within the EO. 
Um, my my reading of that was, uh, to be honest, uh, more of an acknowledgement of the connection, because obviously semiconductor chips are an incredibly important, essential part of AI technology. And given the fairly recent CHIPS Act and all of the, the need for, as a country, to basically have more of this capability within the US and all of the you know the the goals behind the chips act i sort of personally just interpreted this as an acknowledgement of the connection between how important it is to continue to pursue you know all of the goals of the chips act not only for the you know their own purposes but also because they are critically linked to ai so that was that was sort of how i read it i don't know if it will you know end up doing more for the CHIPS Act, re-enlivening it. I'm not sure that it was, it needed to be re-enlivened, um, you know, but but I, I did appreciate the link between the two because I do think it's important. The one last question that I had before we part is the amount of burden that appears to have been placed on the Secretary of Commerce. Did either of you have a reaction to the amount of oversight that will now be vested in the Secretary of Commerce? It didn't trouble me because it's going to be, in most instances, a collaborative effort. And I thought what they were really trying to do, as they do with CFIUS and having the Secretary of Treasury serve as the chair of CFIUS, somebody has to take the lead. But you don't want to stovepipe the development and have one agency do it. And so each of the reports that are required by the Secretary of Commerce involve the Office of OMB, other agencies. And I don't think you can say, gee, this is burdensome. They can obviously delegate certain people. They'll have to hire people with the AI and diplomatic skills to get things done collaboratively in the government. But I found it refreshing that there was a recognition that this needed a cross-agency approach rather than tasking one agency to do it. So I, I guess I'm, I'm less sympathetic to it because I don't think it's going to be the secretary who's going to be doing it. It's going to be some designated appointee. Um, and presumably, if, if those persons aren't already employed, they soon will be if they're going to meet the, the various deadlines. And with the commerce's current appropriations, as far as I could tell. You know, when you come back to, will Congress do its share? The executive order can only go so far. There supposedly is interest in Congress to try to address AI issues. But the problem when you say that Congress has an interest, the the various factions in the various parties have very different approaches. And unfortunately, from my reading of it, I don't even think you can say one party takes this approach, the other party takes that. You have to talk about factions within each party in the current Congress. So I'm not optimistic of Congress holding up its end of the bargain. Well, with that, on on that sunny note regarding Congress, I want to thank you both for coming in tonight. I hope that we can have a further conversation about this. I think there'll be a lot more to discuss over the next year. And I value very much your observations and opinions on this subject, as well as your long-term expertise. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you for having us. It was an interesting conversation. Absolutely. 
All right. And thank you for listening to National Security Law today. You can find us on Facebook. We're still calling it Twitter. Sorry, folks. Threads, as well as other platforms under the handle at ABA NATSAC. If you have thoughts you want to share with us, you can reach us by email the old fashioned way. We're reachable at National Security at American Bar. Please be sure to share this episode with a friend. Remember to rate us when you can. Also, have an intelligent conversation with somebody who doesn't see things the way you do about national security and the laws that govern us. Our writer and producer is me, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you at the conference. And before you go, mark your calendars for the 33rd Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, this November 16th through 17th, held at the Renaissance Washington, D.C. Downtown Hotel. Don't miss out on engaging presentations, thought-provoking panels, and unparalleled networking opportunities. Registration link and event details can be found in the episode description. We look forward to seeing you there. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.